Our New Testament reading is from the Gospel of Mark. We're returning to the Gospel of Mark, which we are preaching verse by verse through. And so our sermon text and New Testament reading this morning is from Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pray with me as we ask to hear God's voice in the word this morning. Lord God, your voice is glorious. Your words are full of glory. You create and uphold all things by your word. You make alive and bring death. There is no wound you cannot heal. And we would perish without your word in the gospel. So Lord, I pray that as we hear your word today, we hear the words of life. And that we be saved and affirmed and comforted by the surpassing love of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Have you ever been really afraid of a storm? I was talking to my kids about this this last week, and after we helped them remember, yes, they have been really afraid of a storm. I hardly watch any local TV today, but when I was growing up, I spent hours as a kid. I have so many memories with my parents watching local news track a storm as it blew over us. Um, I don't know if there weren't as many things on TV, or we were just, we were just always fixated on storms going by. But I remember once when I was a kid, I'm not sure how old I was, I was a little bit older because I was allowed to ride my bike across the highway to friends, to the gas station, and I stopped into the gas station for a Dr. Pepper, and the clerk had the radio on, and he looked at me and he said, hey, get home, kid, there's a nasty storm blowing in, and I'd been oblivious to it. But when I stepped back outside of the gas station, I was paying attention to the world in a new way. I felt the air's kind of sticky humidity. I looked at the clouds quickly rolling in over an eerily green sky. And I knew I needed to start pedaling as fast as I could to get home, even before I felt any rain. And I indeed made it home in time to watch the storm on my TV with my mom from our basement. (laughs) Storms like that make us feel small. They make us feel vulnerable. That's why they're scary for kids and adults. And our text this morning should be deeply relatable 
to anyone who's been afraid in a storm. Jesus' disciples are in a deep panic. They're in a boat filling with water in the middle of a sea in a storm that is not letting up. They are afraid they are going to die. That really gets down to it, doesn't it? Fear of death, fear of imminent death does strange things to people. This kind of desperation reveals who they really are. For many of us, maybe the COVID pandemic confronted us with the fact that we will die and that death may not be far away, maybe for the first time. But this fact is just as true as it was in 2020. However, of course, in our text, there's something very important about the boat. They are in a boat with Jesus. And so our text comes to drive home these two realities, impending danger and the presence of Jesus. And our text brings these two realities together to answer three questions. And as we answer these questions found in the text, we'll see we should be able to boldly entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ because he speaks and acts with the power of God. So again, look at the text in your bulletin, if that's where you're looking at it. Try and underline if you have a pen, or just make a note. What are the three questions in the narrative? It's very interesting. It's driven by three questions. Take a moment and look at those. When the Bible puts questions in a narrative like this, it really cues us into what's important. I'm assuming by now you've found our first question in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Right, so we have our first question. Does Jesus care? Of course, our second question in verse 40 is a question Jesus asks. Have you no faith? Are you afraid? And the final question in 41 is the central one. Who is Jesus? So this first question, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing, comes at the high point, the highest moment of tension in the story. To put it this way, it's been a day for Jesus already. He's been swamped by crowds the whole day. So thick have they been, he and the disciples couldn't eat. Jesus' mother and brothers have come to try and drag him back to Nazareth for his own good. They're worried he's out of his mind. The religious leaders also arrived from Jerusalem that day to confront him, to rebuke him, to call him demonic. And he spent the rest of the day teaching parables to the crowds. And this is the setting of our verses. Jesus is ready to complete his ministry for the day, and so he's dismissing the crowds. And he plans to leave them the only exit he has, which is across the water. There he will take rest in a Gentile area and find new avenues for ministry. So Jesus will, as we'll see next week, has begun to expand his ministry beyond Galilee, beyond Israel, and beyond just the Jews in general. Now in the 80s, we actually discovered a fishing boat like the one they would have left the shore in. It was about 26 feet long. Um, It's about the size of one of those short um, half-size buses. It's about eight feet wide and four feet high. These boats were propelled by about four rowers, and they could carry up to 15 people 
if they needed to. This small handmade boat is what they are fighting this storm in. And it says it's a great storm. It's overtaken them, meaning the disciples, fishermen, can't row their way out of it. The wind is too strong. It's against them. And the waves, when it says they're breaking, it means they're coming over the sides of the boat. The boat is evidently already filling with water. The boat is filling with water so fast they can't bail it out. They can't keep up. The disciples know as soon as their boat succumbs to the waves, they will drown. They will die in the stormy waters. And they have another problem too. Their teacher, their leader, is asleep. During their time of greatest need, Jesus is asleep. They have a very human Jesus in their boat with them, evidently, exhausted from a day of ministry. When the Son of God became man, he took on all the weaknesses of humanity. He could get tired. Jesus did not walk around with the glory of God shining around him. And because of that, to the disciples right now, Jesus didn't look like very much help at all. Jesus didn't seem to be much help right then. Have you ever thought that? Jesus doesn't seem to be very much help to me right now. The disciples were desperate. They're hanging on for dear life. And it's fascinating because in a unique way of telling the story, the whole story is told from their perspective. The focus is on what they saw and they did. We get strange details like there were other boats. An interesting eyewitness detail. Most of the gospel is told by an outside narrator, but not this story. It talks about that the disciples take Jesus with them. They wake up Jesus. They ask Jesus a question. And it is their question that ends the story. Nothing from Jesus. And so they wake up Jesus with our first question. Jesus, do you not care that we're perishing? They're literally saying, if we translate it this way, is it any great thing to you that we're in the process of dying? Think about that. That's full of desperation. They're frustrated with him. This is the way desperate people speak, right? Desperate people are not polite. They're not kind. They bark orders. They yell. They demand. Because they need Jesus' help or they will die. So does Jesus care? That's the question, isn't it? That's really the question most of us ask when we're in a dark place. When things are getting worse, when suffering's increasing, when your sin isn't getting any better, does Jesus care? We have another question, though, similar to this that we struggle with. We wonder, is Jesus even there? Storms scare us because, of course, we can do nothing about them. We can't control them. Our weatherman can't really predict them. We can just watch them. But Jesus is different than everyone else, isn't he? Jesus doesn't wake up and start bailing water with the disciples. He doesn't say a prayer. He doesn't offer emotional support. Jesus stands up and commands creation, and it listens. Peace, be still, and the winds and the waves stop. The waves listen to him like a kid does when they hear that tone in their dad's voice. When Jesus raises his voice, the wind pipes down to hear. Jesus speaks and the waves listen. They become smooth as glass. 
And it says a great storm is replaced by a great calm. Look at the repeating of the word great. We'll come back to that too. We often look at this miracle though and we ask the wrong question. The soaking wet disciples have one question, don't they? They don't ask, how will Jesus get me out of the storms of my life? They ask this. If Jesus can do this, then who is he? This is the most important question. This is the question for you and me. Who is Jesus then? In the story, our miracle answers this question in two different ways. First, it shows Jesus doing what only God can do. And second, it teaches us Jesus is the God of the Old Testament scriptures. Mark, the writer, would have been a good filmmaker. He makes his point by showing us, not telling us. He shows us there's only one explanation for the events of this story. Jesus has just commanded the weather and it listened. It obeyed. Who else does creation obey? It obeys its creator. God, in the beginning, speaks and creation starts. Jesus, commanding the storm, shows he speaks with the authority and power of God. Jesus has power over the chaos of nature. Jesus brings a great calm. Do you believe there is a God above all the universe? Or is it empty and dark and void? We need a place of security when the world gives way. And faith in Jesus is that place of security in chaos and trials. And the miracle shows us Jesus acts with authority of God because he is God. But the way Mark shows us this is actually very interesting. He shows us Jesus is the one written about in all the Old Testament. The man in the boat is the God who created everything, who rescued Israel, who gave the law, and who is praised in all the scriptures. Psalm 104.7 says, The Creator confined the hostile waters to the seas with his rebuke. And Mark says Jesus rebuked the seas. How does Jesus know how to rebuke the seas? He remembered doing it at creation. Jesus is the God we read about in the Old Testament. This is what Psalm 107 says. Psalm 107 is this amazing psalm of praise to give thanks to God for his unfailing love. And Psalm 107 provides us four illustrations of God's love. Each illustration describes a trouble the people face. It describes them crying out to God for help and rescue and giving thanks then for God and his unfailing love. It uses all these different illustrations from hunger to being lost in the desert to show God shows his love for his people by saving them from all different kinds of trouble. God's love is proved by his deeds. This morning we read the fourth example of God's rescue. He can bring those caught in storms into safe harbor. Again, look at verses 28 and through 30 again. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storms be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Who do the people cry out to in the psalm? They cry out to the Lord God. And he is the one who can quiet the waters. He is the one who can still the storm and the waves. Doesn't that sound familiar? 
The psalm sounds like it's telling the story of Jesus right here, even though it's written hundreds of years before. The Old Testament God is the only one who had power over the storms. And Jesus possesses that power over the storm. But this story sounds like another Old Testament story, doesn't it? Kids, is there another story in the Bible about someone being caught in a boat in the storm? Who gets caught in a storm on a boat in the Bible? Jonah. Yes. There are so many similarities between this story and Jonah's. First, Jesus and Jonah are both on their way to Gentile places, aren't they? They're going in the same direction. What's Jonah doing when the storm overtakes their boat? He's asleep. The sailors have to come down and wake him. Jesus is, of course, wakened. They come down because they know they're going to die. And the question on the sailor's mind in Jonah is, whose God started this? Who caused the storm? Jonah reluctantly tells them, well, my God made the land and the sea. So he's the one who's in control. The sailors throw Jonah overboard, and the storm is what? Calmed. And how do the sailors respond when the sea is calmed? In Jonah 1.16, it says, Then the men feared the Lord, the God of Israel, exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The story of the storm of Jonah is striking because it ends with pagan sailors recognizing Jonah's God as the Lord. It says they fear him. It says they worship him with sacrifices and vows. How does our story end? The disciples, again, written literally, fearing a great fear and wondering who Jesus could be. The story of Jonah ends with the sailors recognizing who is the God of creation. And our story here in Mark ends with Jesus treating Jesus, the disciples treating Jesus the exact same way. Our story is to tell us Jesus is the God of creation. It's amazing, isn't it, when you read it? The disciples aren't filled with fear until after the storm. They experience more fear in Christ's presence than they did during the storm. Why? Because that's what people do in God's presence. Fear isn't necessarily a negative thing. It's actually part of being human. I thought about this a lot this last week. Gavin DeBecker, he's a renowned security specialist, wrote a book called The Gift of Fear. Fear is a gift we have. It's a natural instinct given to us to protect ourselves from danger. True fear, he says, isn't like anxiety. True fear is a deep sense of reality, an instinct that motivates you, for example, to get home when a storm's coming in, to back up, to not mess with certain places or people. Fear is how creation reacts to its creator. This is an overwhelming sense of smallness and vulnerability. You are powerless in the face of the all-powerful. This is the kind of fear the disciples experience. You have the ability to fear because you have a creator. Even if there was no sin or danger in the world, you would still be able to have a holy fear of God. Because before God, you are completely small and vulnerable, and God is more awesome and unstoppable and uncontrollable than any storm. And Jesus has the authority of that God. 
Jesus does what the Bible says only God can do. And the people respond to him as he is God. So who is this one in the boat with them? He's God. But there's one question we haven't talked about yet, isn't there? It's the question that's not about Jesus, but the one from him. It's directed to his disciples. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It's the faith question. Jesus asks the disciples this question because they're missing something. Now, his disciples are supposed to have faith, not fear. Does that contradict what I've just said? It's interesting because it's not the same fear we've been talking about. Jesus uses a different word in Greek because this kind of fear is actually the opposite of faith. The word here isn't the normal word for fear in Greek, which is phobos, where we get our word phobia. That's the normal word for fear. This is a special word for fear. It's not used as commonly, but whenever else it's translated, it's translated as the word cowardice. The fear of God we are talking about forces us to respond to the higher power in front of us. Cowardice is not like that. Cowardice is anxiety that keeps us from doing what we should. We won't do the right thing if we're cowardly when challenged. So that's why when we think of cowards, we usually think of a soldier, right, fleeing battle. The problem isn't that he's scared, but it's that he won't do what he's supposed to. He's going to let that feeling keep him from defending his country, let down um, his comrades. Where does cowardice control you? Do the opinions and thoughts of others control you? Do you fear what others would think if you were honest about your sin? Do we try and hide? Instead of making peace as Christ commanded, do we just avoid conflict? Do we shrink back from biblical convictions because they are unpopular, inconvenient, or even dangerous? Are we perpetually inactive? Will we not do the right thing because we don't know if we can do it exactly right? Maybe these are small examples of cowardice. Maybe. But if we lack courage in small things, how will we ever expect to have courage when it matters? If we are afraid what people will think of our faith, how will we ever stand when it would really cost us something? Now, Christian courage, though, as we see in this text, doesn't come from puffing out your chest. It's not a kind of swagger. It comes from deep faith. Right? Jesus isn't worried about how they feel about the storm. He's not telling them to act like men here. He's saying, where is your faith? The solution to cowardice is deep faith. And this is what Jesus asks them. Have you still no faith? If the disciples really believed Jesus had power over the storm, they could have slept like he did. They could have rowed. They could have bailed water securely from a place of faith. Faith is dynamic trust. It trusts Jesus. Jesus is surprised at how little faith they have at this point. They've witnessed Jesus exercise demons, heal all kinds of diseases, tell paralytics to stand up and walk. And so Jesus thinks 
You should already trust me to save you from perishing. To be fair to the disciples, it's even less a question for us, isn't it? We have so many more reasons to trust Jesus. So how much longer will we have so little faith? How much longer will we shrink back from obeying everything Jesus has said? How much longer will we live in anxiety despite God's promises? Jesus has given us every reason to trust him. We see Jesus empowered with the authority over creation. Jesus does miracles. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. And the foundation of any Christian courage is great faith in Jesus. And there is no Christian life without faith. So if we find ourselves lacking or faltering, what we need to ask God for is faith. This is what the early church does in Acts. In Acts 4, you can read it later, the early church is threatened. Peter and John have went out proclaiming the gospel and they've been arrested in Jerusalem. They were threatened continually, it says, and commanded not to teach in this name anymore. So what do Peter and John do when they get home? They gather the believers and they raise their voices in prayer. They pray, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your spirit, your servants, to speak your word with great boldness. And the text goes on to say God answered that prayer. They give them faith, He gives them courage, and they go out filled with the Spirit, preaching all the more boldly. As a side note, if you're wondering how you can pray for your young pastors, this would be a good way. Given the amount of times Paul talks about timidity and fear to Timothy, apparently it's a problem for pastors. Apparently it takes a lot of faith to shepherd and preach. This kind of courage and faith is essential to our responsibility and authority in the church. And probably a big reason churches go bad is because good men do nothing. But it's not just for pastors. If your Christian faith lacks courageous action, I would say pray to God that this year you grow in faith. However, I should warn you, asking God to do this is not a request for ease. The disciples don't start preaching boldly in Acts because things suddenly get easier for them. They preach boldly because they have more faith than all the threats, than all the beatings, than all the imprisonments they face. Where does Jesus show the disciples he is more powerful than all of creation? In a storm. That's where they learn trust. If you ask God for faith this year, and you should, do you expect to learn trust in Christ in times of ease or adversity? John Newton, yes, the writer of Amazing Grace, wrote another hymn, which we probably will sing this year. I look at Ben as a confirmation. It's a little less well-known, But it's a hymn about how growth in faith works in the Christian life. The hymn is called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. It begins this way. He asks the Lord for for faith. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, and might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his faiths. The beginning of this song belongs on a coffee uh, mug. But probably not the next verses, where he describes what happened when he started praying this way. I had hoped that some in favored hour, that when he answered my requests, it would subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead, 
he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. The song ends with John Newton asking God, why would you answer the prayer this way? And he says this, Lord, why? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue me as a worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find all in me. This hymn reminds us of why God allows you to be assaulted by sin and suffering and storms so that you will find your all in him. Because like in one Psalm 107, trouble is where we see God work. When we are in over our heads, God delivers and we learn more faith. So Jesus allowed the storm so the disciples would experience this miracle and gain trust in him. It's not cruel that God works this way. God is a good doctor. He is doing whatever it takes for those he loves to give them what they need most, faith in Christ. His treatments can be radical. Why do you need this faith more than anything? You need faith in Jesus' unfailing love so that you know you can entrust him with your eternal soul. And by God's grace, he will grow you in faith by letting you face adversity. He will let you face threats to your way of life like the early church did. You will have to face suffering. You will have to face rebuke and correction. You may fear for your life, but God can give you faith. If you can see Jesus' power and you can understand he's your creator, then you can stake your eternal soul on him. Since he has power to save, this is how we respond to Jesus. We say, I'm going to stake my soul on him. John 5.24 says it this way. Jesus gives this promise. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Jesus says, stake your eternity and your soul on believing in me. Wager all you are on me. That's incredible. There aren't higher stakes than what Jesus just made. You don't get to live your life over again if you're wrong. You don't get a second chance of life after death. You only appear to be judged by God one time. And Jesus says, for all of this, trust me. And this is why growing daily in trusting him matters. So that you will have boldness in saying, when I appear before God, I will say, I believe in Jesus. I will not be lost because I believe in Jesus. That's it. And if you are struggling with your assurance of salvation, perhaps memorize John 5.24 and remind yourself every day the wager you are making, I am staking everything on Jesus. Will you? Will you stake everything on him? If you realize what it means that the wind and the waves obey him, there is no other reasonable response. And this is why this story became such a precious one, why we teach it in every Sunday school class, don't we? It looks good on a uh, flannel graph. 
And it's always looked good in Christian art. The Christians, from the earliest times, started drawing pictures of a ship to represent the church. You could find it in mosaics, on tombstones, later in stained glass windows. They used the image of the ship to represent the church. These Christians, facing real persecution, and really suffered for their faith. And do you know what they could wonder? Does God even care? But then they would remember the story of the boat. And they would depict the church as the boat. Even though the church as a boat was in the midst of a stormy and dangerous world, they knew no matter what, the church would never sink. Because Jesus Christ was with them in the boat. He was with them, and he made all the difference. The man who was carried across the water by the ship was the God who carried the water and the ship. The man who was tired and yelled at by his followers rebuked the wind and it listened. This is the one the church has always known is with them. They had the one whose love could never fail because nothing in heaven or earth was stronger than he. So, do you know the one who made the wind be silent? If you do, stake your eternity on him. Because today, faith in him makes all the difference. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we hear your voice and it is glorious. I pray that we will all be emboldened to stake everything on Jesus Christ. I pray that you will grant us faith in this year, that we will see Jesus as strong and kind and loving and as the fearsome God who saves us. And so we pray all things in his name. Amen.